Well, good morning, Sugar Creek. I want to thank uh, Pastor Mark for allowing me to share with you this morning. Pastor Mark finished a tremendous series last week on the end days. It was just a tremendous blessing for me personally. And next week, he'll be kicking off a new series. It's called Power Living that you won't want to miss. So you need to be back next week. For those of you that don't know who I am, uh, my name is Juan Carlos Heredia, and I have the privilege of serving as the pastor of the Spanish ministry here at Sugar Creek Baptist Church. And for those of you that do know who I am, well, last time I was here sharing was about 48 pounds ago. Yeah, um, this year I committed to losing weight. And... If I can be honest, it, it's been kind of weird as well, losing that amount of weight. The other day after one of our services, I had a lady approach me, and she took out her Bible, she took out her sermon notes, and a pen, and she said, I have an important question to ask you. And I love it when people approach me after I finish preaching and ask me things about the sermon because it tells me that more than likely something that I've said has helped them. And so with the pen in hand and the sermon notes, she said, would you please write down the name of the diet that you're on? <clears throat> yeah, um, when did I become the pastor of the weight loss ministry here at Sugar Creek? And uh, in the first service, I didn't mention what diet I was, so someone kind of scolded me because of that. So I'll, I'll let you know, I'll let you in on the secret of what uh, the diet is. It's called the tape diet. And um, it's a simple diet, but it's not an easy diet. And that is, the only thing that you need is any type of tape that you have at home. It could be scotch tape, masking tape, doesn't really matter. And uh, every morning, after you get ready for work or before you go to school, and very important, before you have breakfast, first meal of the day, you're going to take two pieces of tape, and you're going to place them on your mouth like this. <laughs> and just leave them on your mouth, leave it on your mouth for the rest of the day. Just kidding. I had to use duct tape in my case. <laughs> so what's interesting about uh, weight loss is that I found that there are two main things why people struggle with weight loss. And maybe you're here today and you're saying, I don't know what the big deal is about losing weight. I've kept my weight all of these years. And maybe that has not been a struggle for you. But for me, after I hit a certain age, it just became a huge challenge. And one of the things that I found about um, dieting is that uh, the first thing is that uh, you feel like you're missing out. When, when you're on a diet, you just feel like you're missing out, right? Um, several times uh, since I've started, we've gone out to eat at a restaurant with my family, and uh, I look down at my order, I look down at my plate, and I see something that is barely one category above eating grass, and then I look around at the plates of my family, and all of them are eating this thing that tastes like, um, what's it called? Oh yeah, food, and that's what they're, they're all eating. And you feel like you're missing out, right? I think the biggest thing that I miss uh, since I've been dieting is drinking Coke. In fact, my, my wife teases me that I should start the first um, Cocaholics Anonymous group um, and, uh, and kind of like, hi, my name is Juan Carlos. Hi, Juan Carlos, and uh, I used to drink eight Cokes a day, but I haven't had a Coke for the last four months. And so, yeah. This is only the second time that ever, anyone has ever clapped for me for not drinking Coke. 
<laughs> well, maybe my wife has before. I'm not, I can't remember. But um, the second reason why I think the diets are so difficult is not only that we, do we feel that we're missing out, but we're wondering throughout our diet while we're res restricting what we eat if it's really worth it. Especially when you get that email at work from your, from your coworker that lets you know that there's a fresh batch of Krispy Kreme donuts in the kitchen, and you're wondering, well, maybe I should start my diet next Monday, because you feel like it, it, you're not, uh, you wonder if it's worth it. What's interesting is that those two pushbacks are the same pushbacks that we have in regards to our Christian life especially when we face a crisis, when we're, when we're facing hardship. We're wondering these two things, and let me, let me say it this way. When following Christ becomes tough, you want to give up and ask yourself, first of all, am I missing out? Am I missing out? You know it, you that work, and to have uh, those coworkers at your workplace. You're trying to be a, a person of integrity. You try to be there on time. You're trying to be Christ-like in the way that you handle your work. And then you look at some of your coworkers and they lack integrity. They're trying to take advantage of situations. They're backbiting and yet it seems as though they're getting ahead in the company while you're stuck in your position. You also know it, uh, young person, because you look at your friends, you look at your classmates, and when you, you see their social media feed, you look at them and, and you notice that they've compromised their purity, they've compromised their morality, they could not care less about following Christ, and yet it seems as though they are having more fun and they're living life to the fullest more than you are and you wonder is it are you missing out the second thing that we worry about when we when we face that crisis in our life about following Christ and and that temptation to want to give up in following Christ is that we're wondering is it worth it is it worth it and it's for the spouse that discovers that their husband or their wife is being unfaithful. It's for the person that receives the news from the doctor saying you are now facing a life-threatening disease. You're wondering, is it worth it following Christ? It's for the financial crisis that comes into your life. After years of trying to do what's right, and now you don't know what to do. You're asking yourself, is it worth it? It's for the parent that has raised their children to fear the Lord, and yet when they get to a certain age, they abandon their faith and they even become antagonistic towards anything that has to do with the church and with Christ. And you're wondering, is it worth it? A little over a year ago, I got a, a call from a lady in our church whose name is Gladys. And unexpectedly, her 23-year-old son, uber popular, uh, life of the party type personality son, decided to take his life. And um, when he did this, he devastated the family. His wife, 
his siblings, and obviously his mother Gladys. And on top of this, Gladys, a few years earlier, her husband, a church-attending husband, decided to tell her that he was leaving her for another woman. And because of that, she had to get two jobs to be able to sustain the home, and she decided that she was going to devote her life to raising her children. And now, her son was gone. And so as my wife and I were getting in the car, I was wondering, what can I possibly tell her that would bring comfort to her? What, what can I possibly say that will help her in a tragedy or in a crisis like this? In fact, I would ask you, what would you have told Gladys at a moment like that? See, the reality is this. All of us, doesn't matter how long we've been following Christ, we are just one or two tragedies or crises away from wanting to give up or throw in the towel if we truly are honest. And today I want to share with you some principles from Scripture that will help us endure even in the worst of our tragedies, even in the worst of our crises. And the great news about this is, is the following, that the things that we struggle with today, these are not new things. In Scripture, these time-tested truths speak to this idea of facing a crisis and enduring and trusting in, in the Lord even when we're, we're facing one of the worst hardships in our lives. And the author of Hebrews, he writes an entire letter in the New Testament in which he's, he's facing this problem or he's writing to a group of people that are facing this problem. And this group of people... They were Jews that had left Judaism in order to follow Christ. And because of that, they had been ostracized. They, they were now being persecuted. They had lost their families. They had lost their financial status. They had, they had lost their positions in the community. They had lost everything in their lives. And persecution was only getting worse. And so they were asking, is it worth it? Is it worth it to follow Christ? And in fact, they were starting to think about going back to Judaism to stymie all of the persecution and the hardship that they were facing. And the author of Hebrews writes this passage, writes the entire letter to convince them that following Christ is worth it and that you're not missing out if you follow him. So, in doing so, the author of Hebrews begins by telling and reminding them of the great heroes of the faith of the past. And uh, all of them had grown up hearing about a Noah, an Abraham, a David, a Daniel, a Sarah, a Hannah, all of these great heroes of the Old Testament or the time before Jesus came. And in fact, most of us have also heard about these stories as well. And he points out that all of these great heroes of the faith had one common denominator, and it was not that they were perfect. Because the problem that we have, I think when we read, especially the Old Testament, and we, and we see the stories of these great heroes of the faith, is that we're tempted to say, man, I don't have faith like that. I mean, I, I don't display that type of trust in God like these great heroes of the faith did. And we think that they were just born with this supernatural faith that God somehow implanted it in their DNA. And that's why they were able to trust God even in the midst of their worst crises. 
But the author of Hebrews wants to dispel that myth. Because here's the reality. Every single great hero of the faith in the Old, Tes in the Old Testament was as weak, flawed, and messed up as you and me. But despite that, there was one thing that they understood, and it's this. The past heroes of the faith endured by trusting in God's future promises. Past heroes of the faith endured by trusting in God's future promises. This is what set them apart from the world and many times set them apart from us as well. And so the author of Hebrews starts his argument by describing the type of faith that they had. Now, now, the passage that I'm about to read at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 11, we normally use this as a definition of faith. But in reality, it's part of an argument of describing the type of faith that was prevalent in these heroes in the Old Testament. And he says it this way. You probably have heard of this verse before. You've read it before. And look at what it says in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So two things that stand out about what he's describing here. And that is, there's an assurance and there's a certainty. And contrary to what we believe about faith today, what's contrary to faith is not skepticism. What's contrary to faith is not doubt. What's contrary to faith is seeing. In fact, when you see something, you don't need faith because you're seeing it right in front of you. But you need faith when you can't see the thing that you've been promised. And so he, he continues saying in verse 2, this is what the ancients were commended for. That is, that they had a faith in God that did not rely on his promises taking place, but just the fact that he had brought these promises into their lives. And so the author of Hebrews starts giving us a gallery of these characters of the faith, of great faith, and he talks about Abel, and he talks about Noah, and then he gets to Abraham, who is someone that we, normal, that we probably know. And he talks about Abraham being this incredible man of faith to the point that he's called the father of faith. And one day... Uh, God presents himself to Abraham. Abraham places his faith in God and decides to follow him. And God tells him, Abraham, I'm going to take you to a land that I'm going to give you as an inheritance. And I can imagine Abraham saying to God, wow, God, that's, that's awesome. I love that. Uh, so what's the name of this place? And God says, I can't tell you that. And he goes, okay, well... Um, where is it located? Um, can't tell you that either. Uh, okay, how long will it take you to bring me to this place? And he goes, no can do. Um, Abraham, you just need to trust me. You just need to follow me. And in fact, it was a journey that took several years for Abraham to arrive at this place that God had promised would be an inheritance for him. And it's interesting to see that throughout the life of Abraham, as the promises of God became greater, 
so did the faith of Abraham. And so later on in his life, one day or one night, I should say, God tells Abraham, look at the skies, Abraham. Look at all the stars in the heavens. Your offspring is going to be like that. You are going you're gonna to have a multitude of children. Now, this could have been funny for Abraham, if not tragic, because he was about 75 years old, and his wife, Sarah, was 65 years old, and he had no children. And on top of that, his wife had been barren for the first 65 years. And now God is promising that he will give them offspring, that he will give them a child that will be the child of the promise, and that through this child, he will have many children. And in fact, not only did, did the promise relate to this, he said that through this child, he will form a nation, and then he would bless all of the nations of the earth. And incredibly, Abraham did not doubt him. He trusted in God. He trusted that God would keep his word and bring this promise to fruition. So even though Abraham, Abraham had to wait many years for this to take place, he was 75, it wasn't until he was 99 years old that Sarah, who herself was 89, became pregnant. And so Abraham, Abraham had been cashing on his social security checks for many years, and yet he was still trusting in the Lord. Now for Sarah, this was a little bit more funny because she was the first person in her retirement home that actually brought a crib to be in, in, the, the play, in her room. No one had ever seen that. And yet Abraham and Sarah ultimately trusted in God, and Abraham was 100 years old, and Sarah was 90 years old when she finally had Isaac. See, Abraham trusted in God. But here's the amazing thing about it. Not all of the promises that God gave Abraham, he was able to see in his lifetime. In fact, the, the earlier promise of inheriting this land, that it would be an inheritance for him, Abraham never saw it in his lifetime. He never saw it. The closest that he got is that he bought this plot of land that was the burial site for his wife and that ultimately would become the burial site for him as well. And he never saw a nation being formed through his children. He never saw nations being blessed throughout the world. But for Abraham, it was sufficient that God had promised that he would do this. And Abraham trusted in God. And the same thing, this is the common denominator in every single great hero of the faith in the Old Testament. That all of them, despite the fact that they did not see the promises come to fruition in their lifetime, they continued to trust in God. In fact, it happened in, the, in Noah's case, it happened in Moses' case, where Moses had to go and face the, the most powerful man on earth at the time, which was the Pharaoh because of his military might. And God said, I, Abraham, um, Moses, I'm going to use you as an instrument to free my people, and then I'm going to take you to the promised land. And in the promised land, I will form a nation, and I will use you guys in an incredible way. 
And Moses saw part of that come to fruition. He saw the miracles. He saw uh, what God did throughout the wanderings and 40 years in the desert. But he never saw the nation of Israel conquer the promised land. He never saw them become a nation. But Moses also trusted that God was going to keep his word. The same could be said about a David. The same could be said about a Daniel. The same could be said about a Hannah. And every single person in the Old Testament. That is, that all of them trusted in the future promises of God. Just the fact that God had promised something was sufficient for them to trust in God. And here is where this intersects with us. And it's in this. Their faith was anchored in promises God had made. Our faith is anchored in promises God has kept. And, and see, the author of Hebrews says it this way. He says in verse 39, these, talking about all these heroes of the faith, were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Now, they did receive some of their promises, but the, great, the greatest of all promises they never got to see. And he says in verse 40, God had planned something better for us, that is you and me, that only together with us would they be made perfect. And that is, and this is where the, the argument of the author of the book of Hebrews leads. If the people in the Old Testament if the great heroes of the faith in the Old Testament were able to trust God for his future promises despite the fact that they never saw these promises come to pass, then how much more can you and I trust in God to keep his promises when we can look back 2,000 years ago and see that the greatest promise that he ever made came to pass through his son, Jesus Christ? So because of what God has done through Jesus, something that he had promised to Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis, and that he continually prophesied in the Old Testament, saying, I am going to bring a Savior, and I will bring someone that will bring redemption, and that will bring you back to this relationship with me. And over and over again, he promises that he's going to do this, and he finally keeps his promise 2,000 years ago. And now we that live on this side of the coming of Christ have this vantage point, have this advantage in our life that we can look back at how God orchestrated everything to bring Jesus to come and die for our sins. And we should have a faith that is greater than anyone in the Old Testament, whether it would be an Abraham, a David, a Moses, or anyone else that lived because we have seen how God has kept his promises. So, why is it that we don't have that type of faith? And why is it that as soon as a crisis hits us, we have a weak faith? We lose our faith. And I think that part of the reason is that we have confused what it means to lean on God than trust on God. Because leaning on God is not the same as trusting in God. Leaning on God is not the same as trusting in God. In fact, let me illustrate it this way. 
Imagine for a second that this chair represents God. And here we are in our relationship with God. And we might have convinced ourselves that we are trusting in him, that we're trusting in God with all of our might. I come to church, I read my Bible, I do all these things. I know that I'm trusting in God, but as soon as the the crisis hits, my faith weakens. Why is it that this happens? And in many cases, what's going on is that what we're doing is we're simply leaning on God. That is, that leaning on God means that I keep control. That means that I have selective obedience towards God. That when he asks me to do something, I can remove my hand, stop leaning on him, and lean on myself and continue to do what I want. See, leaning on God is not trusting in God. And a lot of times, that's what we're doing in our lives. So what's the difference between leaning on God and trusting in God? And here's the difference. Trust always requires surrendering control. Trust always requires surrendering control. That is, that if I'm going to place my faith in God, there'll be times that I don't understand why he wants me to do something. There'll be times where I read something in scripture and I don't want to do it. I don't want to obey. But yet I say, Lord, even when I don't understand this, I'm going to trust in you. And I'm going to do it by surrendering control to you. Because it's something that brings fear to our life. But here's the reality. Unless you surrender control, you will never have a robust faith. And as soon as the crisis hits your life, it will expose the weak faith that you have inside of you. So, how do we continue to develop this faith? What are the things that we need to do? What are the next steps that you and I have to do in order to have a stronger faith? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us that there are three things that we have to do in our lives in order to continue to build our faith. And what he does is that in chapter 12, he starts giving us this analogy that the Christian life is really like a race. But unlike a 100-meter dash that a lot of times we can think that, uh, that the Christian life is like that, the Christian life is more like a, a marathon. It's an endurance race. And because of that, there are certain things that we need to do in order to run this race and in order for us to continue forward even in the times that we face hardships. And the first thing that he reminds us and he, and he tells us to do is this. Avoid, we need to avoid distractions and sin that weigh down our faith. Avoid distractions and sin that weigh down our faith. And so he says it this way. Hebrews 12.1, therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, that is, since we've already seen all these great heroes of the faith that lived in the past, and despite the fact that they did not see all of the promises that God had, had made to them come to fruition, and yet they still believed, 
Because of that example that they demonstrated in their lives, he says, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. And so he focuses on two things that tend to weaken our faith. First thing is a hindrance, or it's also a distraction, and, uh, which is a word that's used in, an, in another verse. And the word can actually be translated with this. The word literally means a weight. Interestingly enough, this is the amount of weight that I've lost since I've started on this diet, and I can hardly carry this thing. I'm just wondering, why was I carrying all that weight all of this time? And if I, wasn't, if I couldn't hold this weight now, much less would I run a marathon holding this, this weight plate. It would just be crazy to do something like that. Yet, many of us have convinced ourselves that we can run the faith race by holding on to our distractions. And in fact, a lot of times, just these distractions are good in, the, in themselves. You know, they're things like our career path, or our friends, or our entertainment, or the goals that we've set out in life, or our hobbies. Things that we can easily justify, but, but here's the reality. If you're honest with yourself, you know that these have become distractions in your life. They have become a weight that erodes your faith, that weighs down your faith. And the other thing, thing is sin. Sin, when we allow it to gain an, an area in our life, just continually erodes our, our faith. And so, is there something in your life that you're hiding from your spouse? Is there something in your life that no one else knows about, but you know about? And that's the reason why your faith is not getting stronger. So the author of Hebrews tells us, distractions and sin are the first thing that we need to avoid because it will weigh down our faith. It will weigh down your faith. Then the second thing that he says is this. Reset your attention on your prize rather than than on your problem. Reset your attention on your prize rather than your problem. In fact, he says it this way. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. And, and he says this is the key to winning a race, and we all, we all know this. Um, that when you're running the race, when you focus on secondary things, when you're running a marathon, you don't, you don't focus on the aching, you don't focus on the pain, because there's a point in the marathon that you just want to throw in the towel. You want to give up, because you feel it's too hard, and the, and the finish line is way too far away. But the key is not to focus on those things. The key is to focus on the prize. To f the, the key is to focus on what comes after you finish the race. And the author of Hebrews reminds us this key principle. He says that a lot of times what we tend to do is when we go through a problem, when we go through crises, we focus on the problem. We worry about the problem. That's the reason why 
You can't sleep at night because you're thinking about this, this thing that you're facing in your life that's staring in your face. And, and you can't seem to think of anything else. But the, but the question is this. When was the last time that worry ever solved any of your problems? And the answer is never. But yet our human nature, our tendency, is to continue to focus on the problem itself. But the author of Hebrews tells us that our focus needs to be on the prize. And in this case, the prize is Jesus himself. And in fact, he says this about Jesus. He says, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That is, that Jesus himself modeled this principle. That when he was facing the cross, when he lived on this earth and he was carrying out his ministry, when he was being crucified, there was one thing that he continued to do. And that was not to focus on what he was going through, but he was focused on the end result. He was focused on the prize. And for him, for Jesus, the prize was this, bringing glory to the Father. And I think there was one more prize. That as Jesus was being crucified, I'm convinced that there was one thing that was on his mind, and that is your face, your face, your face, your face, your face. The fact that he was thinking of us is the reason why he could also face crucifixion with joy, because you, you're never going to see this sentence again repeated in the New Testament or in the Bible. That someone could face crucifixion with fear, but no one faces crucifixion with joy. But when you're focused on the prize, you can do that. And our prize is Jesus himself. There's one more thing that the author of Hebrews tells us if we're to have this robust faith in our lives. And the last thing is this. Constantly remind yourself of Jesus' example. Constantly remind yourself of Jesus' example. In fact, he, he says this. He says, For consider him, that is Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that, and listen to this, you won't grow weary and, what? And give up. See, the last principle that he presents to us is this. You need to remember what Jesus did for you. You need to remember Jesus' example so that you don't give up. And it's interesting to me that tomorrow we're celebrating Memorial Day, and, uh, which, is, which is a great time to remember the great men and women that have served in the military and that gave their life while serving in the military. But at the same time, it's a little tragic that we have to set aside a day to specifically remember them. And as time has gone by, Memorial Day is more related with sales, with barbecues, with family gatherings, with vacations, than it is with remembering the reason why Memorial Day was created. And the reason is, it's our human tendency to forget things, even the sacrifice of those that have paid this great price in order for us to have freedom. 
And the same thing can be said about us as Christ followers when we think about Jesus. We forget the example of Jesus. We forget what he did for us. Because we're so distracted, we look at so many things that we just don't even spend any time remembering what Jesus did for us. But if we have enough reasons to have a Memorial Day, we also have enough reasons to take time every week that we would set aside time and just remember and just thank God for what he did for us through Jesus. So my wife and I were in the car approaching Gladys' house, the lady who had lost her son. And I'm still wondering what I'm going to say to her. What do you say to someone that, has, that is facing a tragedy? And so we walk into her living room, we sit down, and as we talk to her, I started noticing in her just this calm and this peace. And in fact, it got to the point that Gladys started ministering to us. I was so worried about ministering to her, but here she was in the middle of a tragedy, having lost her son, and here she is ministering to us. So I had to ask her, why is it that you have such peace at this moment, that you're able to, to feel the way that you're feeling? And this was her answer. Because I trust that God always keeps his promises. Does that describe the type of faith that you have? What would it be like if we started displaying that type of faith in our lives? That the next time that a crisis comes, or maybe in the middle of the crisis that you're facing right now, that your faith would be strong. What would happen is you would endure. And in the end, you would not give up yet. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being a faithful God. Thank you that we can trust in your promises. Thank you for the example of Jesus and for working in us as the one that begins and also accomplishes the faith in us. We ask that you would help us, that you will allow this faith to grow in you, to trust in you, so that when the crisis comes, because we cannot choose if we will have a crisis or not, that you will help us endure throughout those times. And we thank you for what you did for us through your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. For some of you that are here today, maybe this is the moment that you have to come and finally recognize your need of Jesus Christ. And, if, and for others of you, maybe as you, you are facing your own crisis, maybe you're going through something severe, we want to invite you, after we finish this service, to go to the Next Step Center. There we're going to have ministers that are willing to pray with you and help you throughout this time. Thank you for allowing me to share, Pastor Bruce.